0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for being with us uh, this morning. If it is your very first time with us, welcome. We're so glad you've decided to worship with us. If you're worshiping On the live stream, welcome. Thanks for joining us as well. Uh, If it is your first time, we've got a free gift for you today, a tumbler or a water bottle that you can pick up over at the info desk, and uh, that's our gift to you if you are a first time guest this morning. Uh, If you would like more information about our church or there's something we can be praying about for you, there is a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take it out, fill it out, and then put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Clearly, I'm biased, but I think you should all come to that meeting on uh, June 6th. We'd we'd love to see you there. Going to continue our series in Genesis, and uh, we need God's help to understand His book. So let's go to Him in prayer now. God, thank you that through the the work of Jesus and Your Spirit, You are making all things new. Uh, God, as we sing each Christmas, you, you come to make your blessings known far as the curse is found. And, and God, as we think about the curse of, of work that we are under this morning, would you give us your vision, um, a, a spirit of hope, full realism about our work, um, and uh, a greater confidence that you are working in us and through us. And uh, we pray at Jesus for your sake and in your name. Amen. What do you want to be when you grow up? You ever asked that question as a kid? You remember thinking about it? Uh, When our daughter Addie was in preschool, her teacher asked, Addie, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I just want to work at (laughs) In-N-Out. And her teacher said, why? And she said, so I can eat at In-N-Out. That's Makes sense, right? Now, now clearly, Addie was not interested in the job, per se. She was interested in the perks of the job. But initially, I think that's how everybody thinks about work. When we think about what we'd like to do when we grow up, we think about the fun stuff in work. The, the most enjoyable, most exciting prospects of our future career. What we don't realize is just how rare those moments will be. What we don't realize is that work is work. It's hard. I remember when my friends and I were graduating college, we were so excited about work. Oh, no more grueling 30-page research papers, and no more exams, oh, it was just awful, I just can't wait to start work, and then we Entered our entry-level jobs, and uh, a few weeks went by, and, and then we talked about grad school. <laughs> school seemed pretty great. In fact, we, we just had this whole revisionist history. We just spoke longingly about how wonderful college was, the best time of our lives. Why? Because work is work. It's toil. It's labor. So we're currently in this series on Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which is really the introduction to the whole biblical story. And we're taking a few weeks to look at this topic of work. And last week, I tried to build this theology of work and to show you the connection between our work and and God's work. According to Scripture, all kinds of work can be done to advance God's purposes and, and for God's glory. And In fact, in the Bible, there is no distinction between the Lord's work over here, and, and, min, and money work, and secular work over here, uh, as we saw last week, that we actually worship a God who works, and, and He creates us in His image, which means that we are created to work. In, in fact, God employs us, in a sense, as His co-workers. We saw this when we looked at the, the connection between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, In Genesis 1, God works on his creation. We see this world that's formless and empty. And then what does God do in chapter 1? He forms things. He names things. He separates. He gives his world order. And then he fills the world with life. He gives it abundance. And then fast forward, Genesis 2, we saw that God creates humans, but this land on which humans dwell is formless and void. It's disordered and empty. And so what does God do? He creates humans to cultivate the earth. He puts Adam and Eve in this garden. And what does Adam do? He begins to name animals. What's he doing? He's giving more order to God's world. He's continuing God's work of giving form to creation. And then Adam and Eve, man and woman together, are called to be fruitful and multiply. What are they doing? They're filling the earth with life. And abundance. So God forms and fills. He makes us in his image. What do we do? We form and fill the world in partnership with God. That's the big idea here. We, we work with God to, to bring out the latent potential of this world. We, we take the good things God has created, and we make them very good. We create culture and products and things, and we do all of that as an act of praise to God. And so work in the Bible, it, it is worship. Work is the way we partner with God to cultivate the world for his glory and the good of others. Now, you hear all that and say, Jeff, that sounds nice. That's not how I feel when I go to work. If work is this thrilling partnership with God where we cultivate the world for his purposes, then why do we dread Monday? Why do we have a phrase? You know, someone has a case of the Mondays, right? Why do we say that? Jeff, this view of work, it sounds great, but but frankly, Jeff, it also sounds naive. It's the way a child views work. Frankly, it's the view of someone who's never really worked. Why is work so hard? It's hard, isn't it? It is hard to get up and go to work. Why is it so hard, and how do we cope with it? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Last week, we looked at the plan for work. This week, we're going to look at the problem with work. There are some problems. See, work existed before sin entered the world, before humanity rebelled against God. But when sin entered the world, it not only fractured our relationship with God, it actually fractured our relationship with work. The Bible is not naive about work. In fact, it is brutally realistic about how hard work is, and the struggle of work in a fallen world. And so today, we're going to fast forward in the biblical story to Genesis 3 and see how sin screwed up a relationship with work. Three things, actually, we're looking at today. The problem with work, why is it so hard? We're going to look at our coping mechanisms, our solutions, which don't work. Finally, God's solution, which is Christ's work, and it's the only thing that will free us from the problem of work. So, problem of work, our stuff that doesn't work, God's solution, which does work. Let's start with the problem. How exactly does sin impact our relationship with work? Well, we need to look at Genesis 3 to see the consequences of our sin in relationship to work. And I remember this story. So, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they choose to believe this lie from the serpent, from Satan, And the lie that our first parents believe is this, that the good life is found apart from God. That's the essence of sin, that life works best outside of God's presence, independent of his will. The the lie is that we can govern ourselves apart from God. And so Adam and Eve choose rebellion They choose to live independently of his will. And then at the end of Genesis 3, God confronts the serpent. He confronts the woman, and he confronts the man. And he pronounces judgment on each of them, and he pronounces judgment on our work. Pick it up in verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. Moving on, a little later in the passage, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you see how work changes after sin enters the world? Genesis 2, God plants this beautiful garden. We saw it's a sanctuary, it's a temple in which his presence will dwell. He puts humanity in the garden to work it and to keep it. And so in our original job description, we're called to work in God's space in partnership with Him. And now sin enters the world. And notice, we're still working. God's creative design for us is still intact. We're still workers. But now our work is distorted. It's distorted in three ways. Way number one, first, we are now working apart from God. Apart from God. We were working in the garden We've got to leave the garden. We're working in the field. You know, it's interesting. In verse 14, God says to the serpent, you are cursed. You will be on your belly. You will slither along and you will eat the dust of the earth all the days of your life. And it's interesting. Now, when God gets to Adam and pronounces this curse, he makes a similar judgment against the man. It sounds like the curse against the serpent. You will return to dust. You will eat from the dust. You will eat in pain all the days of your life. And here's the point God is making, that because Adam throws in his hat with the devil and places himself on team serpent rather than team God, he now suffers the similar fate. He is now at enmity with God apart from God working, and what he will experience in his work is not partnership with God, but alienation from God. He's at enmity with God when he goes out to work. Our work has changed because our relationship with God has changed. Notice how often eating is mentioned in God's judgment. We'll eat in pain. We'll eat by the sweat of our face. See, Adam and Eve's rebellion consisted in eating. They ate from the forbidden tree, and the consequence will be felt when they eat. Now, throughout Scripture, eating is a picture of fellowship, ultimately of our fellowship with God. And so, what is eating in pain? Well, eating in pain means this that when we work and when we eat the fruit of our labor, we are going to eat outside of this close partnership that we were supposed to have with God. That's what human beings are consigned to because of sin. So, Adam's task hasn't changed. See, he's still working, he's still cultivating the land. But the location has changed. What land is he cultivating? Before it was the garden. The garden is God's space, which means he's working with God to cultivate God's orchards for God's purposes. And now he's outside the garden. He's outside the temple. He's working in the field. He is apart from God's presence. And so here's the impact, that when we go to work because of sin, there's this innate sense that God isn't going with us to bless the work of our hands. That is the feeling of work in a fallen world, which is why the theologian Miroslav Wolf he says it this way, that God's curse after the fall expresses the fact that alienation is inherent to the human experience of work. That's why work is hard. You go to work and you feel like, I don't know if the work of my hands is going to be blessed. Is this thing actually gonna Work. And because we feel apart from God, now our relationship with work changes, our relationship with creation changes. Now, when we go to work, what do we face? External threats. Next problem with work. Now, because our relationship with God has changed, when we go to work, the earth now is this place that's scary. The, the, the creation is a terror to us. Remember, in Genesis 1, God called humans to subdue the earth. But frankly, now the earth looks like a place that could subdue us. They could thwart all our efforts. God says that thorns and thistles will now grow on the ground. Now, I don't think God is saying that there was no such thing as weeds before the fall. I think what he's saying is that before, thorns and thistles, they weren't this existential threat to our well-being. We were co-working with God, but now that we're not, creation is a really scary place. We plant crops, but the crops could be overtaken by weeds. The fruitfulness could be choked out. We could starve. And that that image of thorns and thistles, it's an image of futility, that, that creation just doesn't work with us now the way we think it should and things just fall apart and you know that if you go to work, you got to just keep working, not to make progress, but just to maintain things, don't you? Do you know how often they paint the Golden Gate Bridge? Do you know? All the time. Get to one end, go to the next end. Get to one end, go to the next For 75 years, more than that now. Why is that? Because it is constantly rusting. Just to keep it looking like that is constant work. That is the state of work in a fallen world. You're constantly working just to maintain what you have, the health of your organization, the systems you already have in place. It's constant. Creation is not working with you, it's in a constant state of rust because God isn't going with you to bless it. That's what it feels like to work apart from God. And because you're apart from God, because you have external threats, what do you feel internal turmoil all the time about your work? See, we we work by the sweat of our brow. Now, again, I don't think the point is that sweat was a thing that didn't exist before the fall, okay? There's a joyous kind of sweating. Dancing, that's good sweating. Running can be good sweat. Sitting in a sauna, that's great sweating. See, the sweat represents not just work. Sweat represents the anxious toil of work. It's that mental work you're doing underneath the work. You know, few things cause sweat in human beings like anxiety, fear. We work in fear. That is the point. Because as you farm that land, as you cultivate it, and those thorns and thistles grow up, you're thinking constantly, they could eat my crop. And if they don't eat my crop, the storm will eat my crop. Or a drought will take my crop. Our locusts will destroy my crop. The fruit of my hands can get destroyed. And so there's this constant mental churning that will my work be okay? See, in the garden we worked in pleasure, but now we work in pain. Progress is through tremendous pain. Paul says in Romans 8 that, that creation itself groans for redemption. We don't work with shouts of delight. We work with groans of agony now. And a little bit of fruitfulness comes at a tremendous cost. Okay, so this weekend, uh I repiped my house um, with some very generous and handy friends, so don't be too impressed. <laughs> have, just, I gotta, have you ever <laughs> have you ever tried to crawl beneath your house? Um, <laughs> there's no comfortable way to crawl underneath. Plumbers, my hat goes off to you because I'm under there, and I'm on my belly, and I'm slithering, and I'm sucking dust, and I, I feel like Satan right now, right? I'm just, <laughs> this is a curse, and I'm groaning. He's like, oh, oh, uh! and my friend, he's in the, under there already. He's like, hey, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, I'm moving, <laughs> Like, it's the most pathetic feeling. I'm not actually even working yet. I'm just getting to the place where I need to work. The dust is not our friend. The dust is out to subdue us, and it is brutal. And ultimately, apart from God, the dirt wins. <laughs> the dirt wins. That's the point. From dust you were taken, and to dust you will return. You tried to subdue this thing, this thing's going to subdue you. You try to eat from the earth, the earth's gonna eat you. And you're gonna decay, that you don't subdue creation. That's the point. And before you return to the dust, your work is labor. Isn't it interesting? In verse 16, God says to the woman, in pain you shall bring forth children. In verse 17, he says to the man, in pain you shall eat from the ground. It's the same Hebrew word for pain. God connects the pain of fruitful Work with the pain of being fruitful and multiplying, which means in this life, what is work? It is labor. Work is like giving birth. And unlike bearing a child, there's often very little payoff to our work in the world. And this is why you're frustrated at work. This is it. You have a dream for what your work could accomplish that's given to you by God because you're an image bearer of God. You think, I could achieve this. And then you go work. it's so disappointing. It falls so far short of the vision you had, this God-sized vision, and you just can't seem to grasp it. I feel this every week when I preach to you. Every week, because on Monday, I have a dream for what my sermon could be. But I eventually have to get up here and talk. I I like, I saw this. Here's here's the sermon prep process right here, okay? (laughs) Someone tweeted this. This is perfect, right? That's Monday morning. It's going to be the most beautiful horse you've ever seen. And the horse gets less beautiful as the week goes on. And then I'm not even sure what it is by Saturday night, but we just, we got to say something. And then I give you my horse. This is why COVID, you think COVID was hard for you. I had to watch myself, okay, every week. It's just awful right? See, but this is a picture of all human work. You start with this dream of what your work will look like and what it'll accomplish, and then what happens? You go to work. You go to work, and the horse doesn't look so pretty anymore. I mean, think about it. You go into law because you actually want to see justice accomplished in the world in some way and fight for vulnerable people, and you'll get to do that a few times, but then you end up doing a lot of paperwork. You go into medicine because you want to heal and restore people and you spend all your time fussing with a computer program to manage patient data. You go into teaching because you actually want to form people's character and then you go teach and you realize you're just bickering with administrators all the time. This is the, the, the futility of work that we feel and it can drive us nuts because we know we're created for more. We know we're created for something more fruitful than this, and yet work is cursed, and that's why we feel. Have you felt this at work? This is the frustration of work. I think this is helpful to remember, especially in our generation, where, like, I think in previous generations, if they tended to undervalue work, like, I know for, like, as a millennial, like, it's just, like, work has to be the way I self-actualize in the world, or it has to fit my passions. I need to make a ton of money and change the world. And like, that's great if you can go change the world, but I think a lot of our disillusionment with work is, oh, no, I didn't find my passion. Now, we think, oh, I just, I got to find a different kind of job that matches my skill set. Maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe it's just because work is work. (laughs) Maybe some of our disillusionment with work has more to do with the fact that it's going to be toil no matter what. It's helpful to remember as you are, if you're younger and thinking about a job, work is still going to be work, no matter how much you feel like it fits who you are. So that's the futility of work, okay? Let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> happy Monday. No, that's the problem with work. So what do we do? How do we cope with the futility of work that we feel innately? Well, two solutions that humans opt for. Two things, and and neither of them work, okay? First is that we can despise work and seek to avoid it. Some of us go, yep, a man works hard, so I'm going to work for the weekend. I'm going to work to put the minimal amount of effort in, make the most money for the littlest input, so that I can avoid work as much as possible. Uh, Derek Kidner, he's got a great commentary. It's, it's pretty old now, but he's got this wonderful diagnostic of the sluggard in Proverbs, just the person who despises work. He says, work's hard, so I'm going to avoid it at all costs. And, and maybe this will be a helpful diagnostic to you to figure out if you're a sluggard. But here it is, in, in Proverbs, you refuse to begin things. It's never the right conditions to start a project. There's always a better time to start the unpleasant thing I need to work on. Conversely, or subsequently, the sluggard refuses to finish things. There's a million projects that have begun. Very few come to completion because they could always be a little better. They could always be a little better. I'm going to put that off till later. I'm going to avoid it. Ultimately, at the root of that is they refuse to face the reality that work is going to be unpleasant. They refuse to face the reality that work in this world will be toil, so I will keep avoiding it at all costs. That's a slugger. Now, here's the problem with being a slugger. Obviously, you know, there could be some employment problems. There could be other problems. But here's the existential problem of just despising work and seeking to avoid it, is that it won't give you relaxation in life. It'll actually make you incredibly restless as a human being. Restlessness. See, here's the consequence. Isn't this interesting? Proverbs says that, go to the next slide, please, that the consequence of avoiding work is actually this disquiet in our spirit. Proverbs 13, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. See, it's not that the sluggard lacks desire. They just lack diligence to do hard work. And so they crave for things. They have all of these dreams. It's a living death when you refuse to work. The the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Elsewhere in Proverbs, it says that the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. See, when we just despise work and refuse to, to, to put in a hard day's work, here's the problem with that. It's not just all the problems it would create for us economically or financially. There's an existential problem, and it's this, that God created us primarily To work. Six days of work, one day of rest. That's an important proportion there that we're primarily made to exert ourselves for something. And, And it's not about if you get paid or not. It's about you have something that you're setting your hand to to contribute to someone else. God made you that way. And when you don't have that, you go crazy. Like we said last week, you're a border collie. You are designed to work. And to work hard. And when you don't, you feel this restlessness because you aren't living according to God's design for you. Some of the most miserable people I've ever met are retired people who never figured out what they were going to do after work. They've got all the rest and relaxation in the world. Aren't they happy? They're not. Because as Spurgeon said, as we talked about last week, some occupation is necessary to happiness. You have to have something to put your hand to, some task that contributes and adds value to others. So you can despise work. It doesn't work. (laughs) You won't be happy seeking to avoid work at all costs and just put in the minimal effort. So that's the one side of the pendulum. Other people, and this is probably the Bay Area, It's not about despising work. It's about deifying work, about making work your God and seeking to worship it. See, some people say work is hard. I'm just going to avoid it. Other people, they just kind of continue Adam and Eve's project. We wanted to live independently from God, and we're going to keep living independently from God, and work is how we establish our identity. Work is how we make a name for ourselves. Fast forward in Genesis a little bit. You see the idolatry of work at the Tower of Babel. Civilization, they want to build this huge tower. Why? It says, go, go back. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Why? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, we'll get to that Tower of Babel story in the weeks to come, but what was motivating work? What was motivating technological innovation and the cultivation of society? Let's make a name. Let's make a name for ourselves. Through work, we can establish our identity. Work shows that I am valuable. Here's what's interesting. In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve receive a name, don't they? They They're image bearers of God. They're called to fellowship with God. They're called to be co-workers with God. They have an identity. Now, apart from God, what does humanity do? They try to make their own identity, create their own meaning. And one of the biggest ways people do this is through work. Why, Why do people work All hours of the day, why does it consume them? Why can you not stop checking your work email at night over the weekend? Why is it hard to set boundaries over your work? Why do you see people just sacrifice the well-being of friendships and particularly family on the altar of work? The reason is at some level, the work I do justifies my existence. The work I do makes me a name. The, the work I do establishes that I'm valuable. And boy, if you have that view of work, that your value, your dignity comes, your, your intrinsic work worth from work, good luck. Because now work is your God. And, and unless I am working, I can't be okay with myself. And if I don't succeed at everything I do in work, then I'm not just failure at work, I'm a failure, period. I think that's where we lean in the Bay Area. Here's the consequence of that. Emptiness, exploitation. Emptiness. If you seek to get everything out of work, you will burn every relationship. You will ultimately be subject to the same futility everyone else is. You will not accomplish what you thought you were going to accomplish, and even the things you do accomplish will return to dust. And at some point, no one will be alive to remember what you did. Your God will die, just like you will. You will return to the dust. Your work will return to the dust. It will be subjected to futility. This is what Solomon found in Ecclesiastes. He tried to find meaning in work. What does he say? I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. I toil and toil and toil, and what did I accomplish? My God failed me. And it gets worse because not only will the God of work fail you, but you will leave a trail of wreckage behind you if you think meaning in life comes from just accomplishing everything I want to at work. The workplace is like one of the greatest arenas of injustice in the world, isn't it? People oppressing their employees, paying unfair wages, abusing people for their advancement, for their success. And the idolatry of work always leads to injustice against other people. I heard about a church in Southeast Asia. And they wrote this worship song, and it was called, God Calls Me By My Name. It's the name of the worship song, God Calls Me By My Name. It's a beautiful song. You know why they wrote it? They, they all worked in these textile factories uh, where they're just treated brutally, and their bosses would never call them by their name. Everyone had a number. And to report to the boss, you just called number number 1102 563 and can you imagine working in that condition day after day? It is dehumanizing. And so the idea that God would call me by my name, well, well, well why do people get treated that way? At some level, it's because someone else needs to make a name. Someone needs to establish their identity through work, and they will stomp on people to get there. This is helpful for you to think about with your own work. Do I idolize work? Well, do I view work as useful insofar as it benefits people, or do I view people as useful insofar as they benefit my work? If your work serves people, you don't idolize work. But if you use and exploit people at work to get ahead, if you're harsh, deceptive with them, at some level, you need work to justify your existence and people are a means to your end. So, our solutions don't work. Let's end with God's solution. This is the only one that works. I like how Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes, right? It's, it, Ecclesiastes is great because Solomon sort of tries everything except God and says, let me just save you the time. None of it works. None of it works. And, and he says two things here. I love this. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. See, so he says, despising work, you're not going to be happy. The fool folds his hands. That's the sluggard. He eats his own flesh. He destroys himself with his laziness. But then he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hand, hands full of toil. To live your life only toiling for something you're never going to accomplish, it's vanity. It's striving after the wind. So right in the middle there, Solomon has the solution. He says there's a handful of quietness, right? One hand you're working, one hand you have tranquility. That's better than idolizing work or despising work. So the question is, how do you get tranquility in your toil? How do you find tranquility in a world where a lot of your work is going to get destroyed? Where it's going to feel futile? Well, you know, Solomon doesn't really give the answer. In Ecclesiastes, it's not until we have the gospel come in and speak a better word about God's response to our work. Uh, You know, there's this beautiful picture at the beginning of the biblical story. What's the first work that Adam and Eve engage in after the fall? What does the text say? says that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Before sin enters the world, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed, which which is a picture of being fully known and fully loved. There's nothing to hide. We are totally accepted by God and by one another. And when sin enters the world, there's this loss of innocence And all of a sudden, we realize there's something not right with me, and we hide. There's shame. And the first act of work in the Bible is what? It's sewing clothes to cover shame. At some level, the work beneath the work, the reason we can't stop thinking about work, we have to keep obsessing about work, is that we feel inadequate unless we're working. That my value in some way is tied to what I can produce, how much money I make, and that's not just working, that's the work beneath the work that I need to justify my existence. I need to, to do enough to cover the things I feel inadequate about. Here's the thing though um, it didn't work. The clothes Adam and Eve made, ultimately, they couldn't cover the shame. And no matter how much they worked, it would not overcome this sense of inadequacy. And so what does God do? He clothes them. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. An animal had to die. And clothed them. Do you see how grace is baked into the very beginning? of the biblical story that human work can't cover our shame so God has to do it through the sacrifice of another and clothe us in our shame and only his work can restore us to the identity we were created to have where we know God intimately. See, this is a picture of what Jesus will do that when he dies for our sin and forgives us and cleanses us of our shame, we're reclaimed by God And so we are no more shame, no more guilt, no more crippling sense that you're not enough, any of these things. You're fully known and fully loved by God, which means this now you can stop working for an identity. You can stop working to justify your existence. In fact, now I can work from my identity. I'm a dearly loved child of God. I've got nothing to hide, I've got nothing to prove. So my work isn't about making me feel okay about myself. My work is actually about praising God and maybe helping you. That's why I work, to serve other people. But I don't need that to be okay with myself. Here's the other part. Because of Jesus' resurrection, as we said last week, Jesus is going to make all things new, and when we labor in the Lord, when we do work for his glory and for his good, I don't know how it all works, but God takes that work and enfolds it into his eternal purpose. So guess what? Because of the resurrection, some of that work you do, God's going to use it to make this world new, to redeem this world, to make this world his dwelling place. And so there are eternal ramifications to work because Jesus' resurrection shows that he is going to redeem this world and he's going to work through us to help do it. See, only the gospel can fix your work problems. Christ's death frees us from basing our identity on work, but Christ's resurrection frees us from despairing over our work because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And only until you drink deeply from the gospel Can you go in on Monday morning and say, no matter how good or how bad this day goes, I'm okay. I'm okay. This does not reflect my identity as a person, whether I screw up or whether I have a great day. I'm God's. And I'm free from despair that even as I work, even if the horse doesn't come out right, God can still take my little efforts and he's with me in Jesus and use them for his eternal purposes. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that our labor in you is never in vain. God, would we not grow weary in doing good in our workplaces? Lord, you say in 1 Corinthians 7 that our work out in the world is a calling from you. God, it is just as much a calling as someone called to ministry, called to to missions. God, we are all called to mission and ministry through the, the jobs you put us in. So would we serve you with joy in our jobs and not grow weary even in the midst of futility because we trust Jesus that you are working with us, that you are for us, and that you will make all things new. Pray it for your sake. Amen.